Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your co-host, John McDin, and I'm with uh, host Dan. Hi, Dan. How are you? A little hot today. It's very hot. We were just saying 37 degrees in Switzerland, where you are, 32 in Czech Republic. Um, where our guest lives, it's always hot. But uh, yeah, John, how, how are you doing? We've, we've done a lot of episodes. We've done three episodes in the last week, haven't we? It's been busy. Yeah, it's been busy and some great guests. And I'm just looking forward to talking to Ken because I think he's doing some fantastic work and so appropriate right now with the whole uh, creative tensions that we have in different societies and cultures. So I feel Definitely. privileged that he's with us. Today. I was waiting for you to get creative tensions in, John. You did it in the first first five minutes. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm not no, going to use it. it anymore. You know it's what? My, you it's, my it's my favorite phrase. I, I love it. I, just, I had to look it up when you first said it. Now I know what it means. <laughs> yeah. you, I owe you a beer every time I say it. There you go. Exactly. And you're drinking it. Look, uh, our guest today is Ken Shelton. Um, Ken's been on the podcast before um, in the very early days of a pod. Um, Ken is a former educator. We've worked together. He does a lot of training with schools on a lot of different topics. He trains leaders. He does... Um, well, he'll explain things about uh, anti-bias, inclusive culture. So, uh, Ken Shelton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's good to spend time with you all and reconnect. Good to be able to chat with John. John, go way back. But I, I have to say, um, I love the use of the word of the phrase "creative tension." That literally is perfect for so many things that are going on right now. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good phrase. Like John, yeah. That's why I hang out with people like John who are more intelligent than me, so I learn new, I learn new things. <laughs> I don't think so. But I think the, the idea of creative tension is it's neutral. It can be positive or negative because creativity has a lot of kind of, uh, you know, scope. And I think the tension and the creativity together, I, I, I don't know. I just like the term. I have not invented it. I remember reading somewhere or, and I'm sure I'm going to get sued because somebody has patented it or registered it. But anyway, I do like the term. Well, so two things. One, I looked it up. It comes from uh, a book in 1990 written by Peter Singh called The Fifth Discipline, The Art ah, and Practice right. of the Learning Organization. So that book. I remember that book, but I don't, I don't remember if I read it, but I do remember the book. So that's perfect. And I don't know if Dan is keeping a tally, but so far we've used that phrase five times. So that's five beers already. It's true. I've got a, beer, I've got a non-alcoholic beer, unfortunately. See, 0%. So, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't And I work. just have very clear beer. Yeah, exactly. And I, I have a beverage that is made from the uh, roasting of the beans of a cherry, i.e. coffee, mixed <laughs> with some milk that has been steamed to a, a solid 145 degrees Fahrenheit. So... <laughs> Wow. What's That's interesting very, uh... Ken, about the book, uh, The Fifth Discipline, that is I for me and I've worked in many leadership teams over the years is kind of the the key book about strategic thinking yeah. and how people have to really be able to get rid of their mental models to be able to think strategically long term, midterm. But uh, if you have not read it, Peter Senge's uh, Fifth Discipline, and then he has a school workbook for school leaders. So. Yeah just plugging his book. Yeah, definitely. That and May I add that that actually connects to, I know we're going to have uh, further dialogue about it, but that actually connects to one of the core principles um, that I do when it comes to uh, school transformation, organizational leadership. Uh, and, it, and it's a whole idea around uh, what I call examining habits of mind and cultural norms. And the fifth discipline, uh, you know, based on my understanding of it, uh, you know, it's described as a gap between where a group is and where it wants to go between vision and reality or desired result. 
And my whole thing is that in order to understand where you are and where you want to go, you have to examine what got you to where you are before you can determine what direction you want to go. And that's examining habits of mind and cultural norms, which goes to the whole reason why the two of you have had have have me on and the privilege for our dialogue is, you know, the idea around how our biases uh, influence our actions and our words and how schools uh, schools as an individual uh, entity within an entire system of education develop normalized habits that uh, in some cases uh, they can be destructive, especially to our most vulnerable uh, student populations and uh, educator uh, population as well. Great. Ken, just really quickly, just um, just before we jump into, we've got a couple of topics, high-level topics. Do you want to give us a quick overview of like of your career, who you are, what you've done, just for people who missed the last one? I think it'd be great to set the scene of, of um, yeah. what your background is. Yeah, perfect. So the the I, my bio is is pretty much a novel, so I will tell the abbreviated version of it. But uh, ultimately, I've worked in education for more than twenty-five years. I uh, taught middle school. Uh, most of my classroom teaching career, I, I taught English language arts, social studies, and then my last 11 years in the classroom was in a technology lab. Uh, here in the state of California, I have certifications in English, social studies, and career and technical education. Uh, I'm a big CTE advocate. But my, my, my growth in education and my work has both expanded and evolved. So now I do, I still do a lot of educational technology work because I, I believe in tech, period. But I also do a lot of leadership coaching, again, organizational change, organizational leadership, um, you know, uh, cultural competencies, which is culturally responsive and culturally relevant educational experiences. Uh, I do a lot of anti-bias and anti-racist work. Um, I do a lot of work around uh, literacy. Uh, so, for example, I define literacy in five dimensions, which is reading, writing, speaking, listening, and observing. And then, of course, I do uh, I have a master's degree in educational technology and in design. And so everything I look at is also from a design perspective. And uh, I'm one of the few voices that dismantles a number of normalized things in education, one of which being uh, the whole idea around, quote unquote, design thinking. Uh, it's not thinking. It is a cognitive process. Uh, and it didn't originate with the Stanford D School. Uh, I know a lot of people think it did, but I take people even through the history of design protocols and a design approach to the things that we do. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot. And of course, I my favorite is to be on stage and deliver keynotes and memorable speaking experiences for uh, the audiences that I have. Uh, I've had the privilege of keynoting conferences that focus on ed tech, that focus on leadership, that focus on literacy, that focus on multilingualism, uh, career and technical education, uh, learning science, and um, many other elements of things like, you know, diversifying your educator workforce, the impact of having uh, diversity within the curriculum, as well as the representations uh, within the school uh, and even within the educator workforce. And the privilege I have is that work has taken me both uh, inside all over the United States as well as outside the U.S. So there's a lot. It's a right, lot, Ken, but, but I Ken, love you, it. You, you're missing out the, the the coolest thing as well, which is you, you played football. You were wide receiver for UCLA at uh, football, which, which I always yeah, but that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just a, that was at UCLA. Year. I was there from 1988 uh, to my last season was the fall of '92, and I I graduated in the spring of '93. So I graduated in the summer of '93 from UCLA grad school. 
Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. then. I was in the uh, Graduate School of Education. Oh, the GSEIS. Ah, right yeah. on. Okay, yeah. The lab school. So then we were on campus at the same time then. Yeah, I was not going to see football. I'm sorry. I was a big Frisbee player, uh, Frisbee golf. But, uh, okay. wow, I missed, I missed seeing you. So now I can go back. Ah, what a bummer. Yeah. That no, means you did, were playing Frisbee did, did, golf did, out there on the IM field. Yeah. No, yeah. Did the Frisbee golf team have the same status on campus as a football and basketball team? <laughs> no, it definitely did not. No, no, no. I don't Holy think cow. we were even a registered organization. I think it was very informal. Well, I want to say it was a club sport when I was there. Yeah, because yeah there it was were a club sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. But it yeah. was not varsity or – no, it was just – yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was very right jealous on. of the Kanks. I remember because I, I played rugby for my university. And right. If we were lucky, we'd have a few friends and family watching. And Ken was like, oh, yeah, we had 80,000 people watching. I was like, what? Yeah, depending on who we played. Because, you know, our games were out there at the Rose Bowl. And uh, they still are for the team. But, um, but yeah, so I've got the sports. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is I love sharing the story of how after I, I unsuccessfully attempted to make it playing professionally, uh, I did acting and modeling for a long time as well, because I'm in L.A. That's what we do, uh, or at least a lot of us attempt to do. So but I'm glad you brought it up that way, Dan, because ultimately my whole thing is that I don't want I don't want people to. If they know that I was an athlete, I want them to know that that's literally one paragraph of one chapter of an entire novel of my story. Yeah. And I think I really like that, Ken. It's the idea of the Renaissance person, you know, and that yeah. journey is a lot of different professional uh, experiences, different adventures. And I think especially for children and young students and young adolescents, for them to understand that, because I think there's a lot of pressure to kind of lock into something, mm -hmm. maybe less today. But I know in the system that I uh, was educated in Switzerland, it was pretty much at 11, you made a decision on what you were going to study and that locked you in in certain career paths. Right. And I think that's what is so wonderful when we have mentors and people that can show us. And I think, Dan, it's the same in your case. You've had many different roles. Mm -hmm. And I think that in itself is a very powerful statement for kids because they feel then more empowered that even they might have an idea for one thing then gravitate to something else. That's all possible. I think life, life's too short. Just, I mean, if you all try different things, you know, I mean, we're going to, we're, we're all going to be dead in a few years, you know, like it's just. Try, try well, not a few, hopefully, but yes. Well, a few, <laughs> hopefully a lot, you know, but like in, 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 the, in the great universal scheme of things, it's a very short period of time we're here. Correct. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a snippet, but John, to your point, yes. And this is precisely why with school leaders and district leaders and school system leaders, if you will, I, I always ask, you know, when I do, for example, leadership coaching is how do they define success in the eyes of the children that they are responsible for? And to me, the whole idea is that when you conclude your educational program at whatever, you know, uh, uh, year or demarcation that is, how many how many options do you have available? And now now you see why when I mention all the different areas that I give talks in, it's the whole idea that to me, I deem a successful educational experience for a child is that they've been supported and realizing their full potential. They've been able to uh, curate and highlight the gifts that they bring to those environments. And that when they conclude whatever segment of that program is, that they have options to pursue. What I would say is they want to have options to pursue their dreams and their goals with vigor. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. I think John, one, one, of the, of the, one of the topics we got here um, was about 
building an inclusive culture that also supports meaningful cross-cultural connections. Yeah. Um, I think that was a topic you wanted to uh, jump into. Is that, is that right, Ken? Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. So, um, John, do you want to kick off on this? Any, any yeah. thoughts about this? So, I think, Ken, what would be interesting for our audience, if we were talking 15, 20 years ago, this topic very likely would not be getting much airspace. Uh, definitely in certain academic circles and certain cultures, but generally, and in the last 10, maybe even less, seven, eight years, I think COVID beyond, suddenly international schools have suddenly realized and done a lot of self-reflecting in schools in general and societies that we have a big problem. Mm -hmm. We have a problem of, uh, you know, diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion, and it is ingrained and it is actually sometimes so ingrained we don't even notice it. What do you think for you has been the kicker where schools suddenly have said, Ken, we need you over here? Is it through self-reflection? Is it because now it's, and in no way am I saying this in a negative way, but it might perceive it's the flavor of the month, or is it now suddenly become so apparent that we're in catch-up mode and now we have to really catch up? All of the above in varying degrees. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, is I think a big part of it is that, you know, for, for the three of us, you know, we've been around ed tech for a long time, all three of us. And there was a whole idea around, you know, a flat world and that we are hyper-connected through this thing we call the internet. And what I think that people there, you know, in those three different camps. So you have the folks that started to recognize the, um, the interconnectivity that we all have that from my experience, especially learning from and the uh, privilege I've had of doing a lot of work with a lot of indigenous peoples inside the U.S. as well as outside the U.S., is that we're all connected. You just may not realize how. Where there's, a, there's an interconnectivity called humanity. Okay. So you have, you have some folks that, that reach that, that epiphany. You know, somebody, something or somebody put a little bit of dye in their water and they're like, oh, now I see it. And then they recognize the importance of investing both their personal time as well as within their roles uh, to broaden their scope of understanding as well as their depth of understanding of why it's important to make those cross-cultural connections. Then you have the folks that were more reactionary. Oh, it's the flavor of the month, and I don't want to be seen as uh, outside of the prevailing narratives or divergent from where the direction everybody's going, which, by the way, is one of the cognitive biases we carry called the bandwagon effect. And so then they decide to engage in the work. But, but because it's not done from a genuine or authentic perspective, it runs the risk of being performative. And, and, and yes, there are many instances where folks will look to someone like myself or somebody else and say, we want you to come in, but we're going to provide very narrow guardrails on the work we want you to do so that for us, we can say, we've kind of done the work, we can check off that box, and then we're going to move on. Uh, and then you have the folks that when you're able to engage in the right degree of dialogue, and it kind of connects to your creative tension, uh, you know, the gap is the whole idea around, and this is where I always recommend to schools, uh, and it's fascinating to see how many people know but don't know, is I always reference the allegory of the cave. And the whole idea being that you can't see past your own shadow because you've been in the cave so long. And you need somebody else who has a different perspective 
but is aligned with where you want to go, i.e. the fifth discipline. Um, and so they're going to be able to see things that you don't see because the whole idea being, uh, and this is what I would share with folks is you've been, you've been living in the water and you're paying me to put a little bit of dye in it so that you could see it. But then we're also going to co-construct a definitive and sustainable pathway going forward. Because in the, in the end, you know, when I think about it with international schools, I remember challenging some, I won't name them in the podcast, but there were some that I spoke at where I literally would say to them, as I look around this campus, as I look at the representations on the walls, as I look at the books in the library, as I look at some of the elements of the core curriculum, whether it be an IB curriculum or, or not, I always ask, why do I not see representations of folks that look like me that doesn't involve the brutality and the destruction of my ancestors? What, what story is being told and what stories are not being told to the student? And correct me if I'm wrong, most of the students have a goal of attending a university in the UK or the United States. So my bigger question is, when they set foot on one of those campuses, are they going to contribute to campus life and thrive? Or are they going to retreat to what's safe and comfortable and operate from a degree of myopia as they meander through their, their, their bachelor's program, never make any connections with anyone who looks like me or someone who's different from them, and never understand the importance of having you know, a diverse set of friends, because ultimately in the end, when you become, uh, when you get into your professional capacity, what's the likelihood you're going to have to either work with, work for, or support, either as a customer or a client, somebody who doesn't look like you, share the same language, you, same elements of the same identity as you? That's, that's uh, so interesting. And it kind of gets me to think, and I'm going to put it in the chat, I took a course and I had to read this article. It's called Washing the yeah. World in Whiteness, International School Policy, yeah. Alexander Charles Gardner McTaggart. And I'm, maybe you know him. I'd never heard of him. And basically he says international schools pretty much are based on white men. Uh, white yes. men, and that's the perspective. And over the years it's been so ingrained and that there is this, and it's a very provocative article. It really kind of shakes the foundations. And I think many, many schools and school leaders and educators would feel offended because I think in their heart, they actually think that's not true because they're doing due diligence. But I think what you're saying, you are in the water, but let me color it so you actually see what's going on. Am I right in that kind of your operation? Correct. And, and the thing is, is like, uh, so I am familiar with that, but, but in all honesty, I have not read the article. Uh, I'm familiar with several others that have been written about um, the IB program reinforcing, um, you know, it, the, the, the question to ask is how, how does the curriculum center the experiences of a cis hetero white male? And when you start off from that perspective, you start to see who's celebrated and highlighted in the sciences, Who's celebrated and highlighted in, in history? Who's celebrated and highlighted in English class? Who's celebrated and highlighted in the mathematics class? And all of those ways in which it is centered. And when people feel bad about it, I always ask the question, you know, the first step is to lean into that discomfort and ask yourself, am I uncomfortable because I now realize that I have reinforced and perpetuated this? Or am I uncomfortable because this is also aligned with my experience, which means that I was told basically a bunch of lies. And, and, and so when you start to decenter whiteness in the curriculum and recognize that 
we have to be able to provide multiple perspectives on the same thoughts and ideas. We have to provide multiple representation from an asset perspective. It serves as a mechanism of affirmation for those that are aligned with that particular identity, but it also serves as a window for others to see that, okay, that, you know, I'll give you, give you, I'll share with you a prime example. So back in uh, April of 2020, one of the patterns that I noticed on social media was people were saying, you got to, you got to, uh, 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 before bloom, Nazareth before bloom, Nazareth before bloom, Nazareth before bloom. And I waited and waited and waited. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put some dye in this water because they don't know what I know. And so I said, before you start to levy any degree of praise to Maslow, you should know where he got those ideas from, who he appropriated and stole those ideas from, and how he shifted them into more of a westernized approach. And part of my knowledge of that was because I had done work with the indigenous peoples that had originated this sort of pyramid or slash hierarchy of needs. And it's the Blackfoot peoples who are in present day Alberta, Canada, and in, uh, in um, and the Dakotas in the United States. But theirs is very different. Theirs is a community-based approach that if the community if the community supports the community's needs, it'll lead to cultural perpetuity, meaning, and this is where you get into the inclusive part. If the three of us work at the same school, if one of you two is able to support me and my needs and I do it to you, we are healthy and thus the community is healthy. It's a community-based approach rather than an individual needs approach. And that's the whole idea around the uh, the whole idea around one decentering a lot of whiteness and white norms, but also highlighting the importance around what I always say is true community. You can't have real collaboration if you don't have real community. Period. And you can't have real community if you don't approach it from a cross cultural competency perspective and an inclusive perspective. Every individual recognizes it, uh, is supported in recognizing the gifts they bring to the environment. They're affirmed in those gifts, and those gifts are necessary for group growth. The rising tide lifts all boats is what I always say. And when you have that across the board, you have community health, which means you have community wellness, which now leads to direct correlation between that and students being able to thrive as well as the teachers that are responsible for their learning being able to thrive. Nice. One thing you started off with, you were talking about how uh, we're all into ed tech. And I know Dan was involved very early on, you know, when the Internet first came out, it was kind of considered the equalizer. You know, anybody could get on, anybody could have a voice, anybody could put something on. And that's really changed. We have polarization, we have algorithms. I'm just curious for both of you. What do you think went wrong? You know, I mean, Dan, when you first started in your professional career and the Internet came on, it was I, I think, you know, it was kind of there was a lot of hope. It was like, oh, this is great. This is everybody has a window to it. This is perfect. This is what we've always been looking for. But today I would say it's the opposite. It's funny because, yeah, I mean, Ken and me are about the same age. We all got internet. I'm guessing the same. Ken, probably mid 20s or something like in my 20s. I was I started getting, you know, we had there was like one pre-internet connection at the school but um you know i i don't think it's as bad as people say in some ways i mean like if you look at if you look at the u.s for example it's it's ultra polarized compared to every country and i think social media definitely makes that worse i think the internet makes it worse people silo their news they'll get msnbc on one side or they'll get fox news on the other side they you know they won't listen to someone else's opinion because their opinion is the only right opinion and, and that's the end of it. And, I, and I, I don't think it's just America. You know, I think the America is extreme example, but you know, 
I think there's a difference between that and what real life is. So like, that's what, he, that's what Twitter's like. That, that's what Twitter's like. Everyone's on one side of the other, calling each other, you know, Nazis or cooks or whatever they do. But, but then when you meet people in real life, like we meet, I meet my friends, I meet whoever, there is that connection, you know. It's just, I, I just don't think, it, I think if you just look at the internet, you'd think things, it had made things a lot worse than it actually has, you know. I, I don't know. Curious what you guys think. I actually, where, where you and I diverge on that, I think that the internet is a, is a microscope on societal norms. We've always been, there's always been degrees of division. They're just more amplified now because they're hyper visible on social media. Yeah. Um, I think that there is, you know, if you think uh, historically speaking, there's always been varying degrees of hyper tribalism as well as socially constructed hierarchies. The whole, again, going back to my community thing, the whole idea being in order for me to be successful, I have to be better than you. And if I'm in a position of power or proximity to power, I can create policies and or uh, norms that keep that hierarchy in place. Mm -hmm. Obviously, historically speaking, we have that in the United States. If you look at everything from uh, enslavement to um, our political structures, um, I know the two of you are in Europe, and I, it's funny because I always have this conversation with my oldest daughter around in Germany, where they have, if I remember correctly, they have like six truly viable political parties. Well, here in the United States, we have two. So think about how that reinforces, uh, you know, our, the social condition and the human condition into a binary, either this or that. There's no, there's no nuance in between, and that's where yeah. Dan, I think you're right, is that. You know, the, the, the truth always lies somewhere in the middle. But in order to create, uh, you know, this vacuum of power, you have to turn it into a binary, either by in reality or for sure by perception. And what you're seeing in social media is the amplification of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ken, it's interesting, you know, schools now, uh, for example, in the school that I am, we all have to do uh it's called IDA, but it's same idea, uh, DIJ, they're, they're sensitivity programs, we have to watch videos, and, it's, and, and there are many schools that I think are honestly saying, okay, we're going to tackle this, we're going to have you uh, read some articles, do some courses, but not just one-offs, but repeatedly, and already I'm, I'm seeing a very different set of faculty on staff where they're greater representation. We are a very international school. I mean, like all international schools, 70, 80 different nationalities, but I'm seeing much more uh, a kind of a multicolored representation of culture and beliefs. So I, I think we're maybe on the right path or do we still have a lot? I mean, not that I, I are we doing the right first steps? You think international schools are making the right first steps, in your opinion? Because you work with a lot. You're a mute. Uh, we lost you. Okay, how about now? Yeah, perfect. That's weird, the uh, connection to my microphone. You know, I, because I don't, I'm not on the ground rolling up my sleeves with uh, like your campus or other campuses. I can't really, I can't really share a definitive um, yes or no to that question. What I always ask is when you're, when you're committed to engaging in the work, tell me what are the first steps you've done that are intrapersonal? 
because the whole idea is to recognize that systems are made up of people. And if you want to change the system, you got to change the people. And far too often what I see as a, I want to dip my toes in the water, but say I went swimming is reading articles and reading books. Rarely is it a self-interrogation and self-examination. How have I perpetuated many of the things that I now need to engage in the work to counter? Um, have I acknowledged and recognized that it is a lifelong journey? There is no actual end, end result. You know, I would say it's a marathon, not a sprint. But, but, but the thing is, is that there really isn't any finish line because we are so many of the things. And it's interesting, that article you, you mentioned about uh, from Alexander Charles Garner McTaggart is there are so many things that are so normalized and green in our societies uh, in general that um, it's a constant. It, it requires constant work. Uh, I was smiling as you were saying that because one of the common, I would say one of the common first steps I notice schools do is they'll say, read this book or read this article, let's join a book club and we're going to watch a video. Um, I actually strongly advise against doing those things to start. I always say the start has to be with you, the individual. Questions like the following. Okay, how has my life experiences shaped the lens in which I view the world and my role? What experiences have I had that I could say I've connected with someone who doesn't share the same gender identity with me, language with me, religion, cultural identity, race, ethnicity? How much experience have I had with those? What perspectives have I gained from that? Once I understand that, I then now can go through the process of saying, okay, here's where there is a gap in my perspective or my lived experiences. And that gap, more often than not, that gap is usually due to um, proximity. Um, and so like when I've gone in a lot of international schools, it's not a surprise to me that when I set foot on campus, I'm the only one who looks like me on that campus. And I've talked with many other black male educators who have gone to international school recruiting fairs. And, and, and I'm like, I wish you luck <laughs> because what's normalized, they won't hire them. Even wow. if they speak more than one language, which I do personally, uh, even if they have all the, you know, on paper, they have all the experiences. But when you see them, they're like, well, we've never hired someone who looks like you before. So we're not going to start now. Yeah. And this is where I always share with schools and district. If you truly, truly want to begin the definitive and non-performative process of diversifying your educated workforce, I always recommend several things. One, when you're reviewing applications, make sure that the name and the geographical location is redacted for at least the first few um, uh, steps. So that's totally based on what's on there. Uh, also, if you do actively recruit someone who looks like me, my follow-up question is what resources are in place to uh, support someone like me thriving and you being able to retain them. Uh, and, and as you both know, in the international schools market is usually what is usually about a two year contract. So my whole thing is, how am I going to thrive in that two years? And what might that look like if you say, you know what, we are so, we believe in it so much. We're actually going to commit to you for four years and we're going to continue to actively recruit other educators who look like you so that it doesn't become this situation where you're the only one. And then now you're gone. And I can share with you both being the only one. Man, that is a lonely existence. 
because I was only imagine yeah school that I worked at. Yeah, Ken, I do want to give credit because uh, to uh, the school that I'm involved with is that they the entry point has been provocative videos and articles with a long term curriculum of regular coming back. And Good. one of the things, Good. and so I do want to give credit to the school because I think they're doing a fantastic job. But I think your point's an important one where you have to do the introspection, and I suspect that for a lot of schools, it's much easier to push an article out yep. than to create the time, the space, the structure, and the safety net to have those more difficult self-reflections. I yep. suspect that. But what I like about the Citroen I am, it's a nice combination of both. But the entry point to kind of get everybody ready to go has been some really rich videos and some articles to kind of frame the setting and kind of set it up that we're committed to this. Now we begin that introspection. But I think yeah. your point's an important one. John and Ken, I'd love to hear your point because I, I think there's an interesting point. And uh, maybe we can say something controversial about international schools here because we, um, we're talking about an inclusive culture. And I'll give you an example. Take my kids. Um, they've gone to an international preschool. Uh, my son's going to an international school right now. And Global Concepts, the preschool, I can tell you, is unbelievably diverse. You know, they have um, African teachers, uh, teachers from several Asian countries. Um, they've got teachers from Latin America. They've got some Americans, some UK people. Very diverse. Um, my kids have friends. You know, they're, I, I don't think they're going to grow up thinking skin color is, is, is a thing right now at, at this age. But there's a big but. It's all rich people. <laughs> So, you know, they, they like, there's also, a, you know, it's something that people don't talk about with international schools. You've got to be able to afford yep. twenty to $30,000 a year Correct. to go there, you know? So it automatically, it's very difficult to be equitable when, when that is, that is the, the bar you're setting for people to go there. I'm curious what you think, what you both uh, think about that. Cause it's kind of an interesting, interesting topic that people, I don't really hear discussed that often. Okay. No, it's, 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 I mean, that's exclusionary by design, um, but let's call it what it is. International schools need to, they need to have a, a reliable source of revenue to be able to operate. Yeah. And they so, do give scholarships. I mean, schools, they do give scholarships and things like that. It's not like it doesn't happen, but, but it is, you know. Right, right. They do. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the, I guess for me, my whole thing is around, you know, is it, the question I would ask is, is it possible to, have a revenue stream, make money, and still do good. And I believe it is. Yep. If you sure. if you if you're operating from the right perspective, uh, you don't have a uh, you know which is the opposite of myopia, and 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 you um, proceed with a high degree of intentionality. So, for example, I use that word intentionality, John. It sounds to me like the campus you're at. There's a degree of intentionality there because it's been consistent and ongoing. I personally would love to look at because I would start to scrutinize. Okay, what are the articles? Who wrote them? What perspective are they writing them from? And the videos, yeah. because what I also find when it comes to any degree of culture bias or race work is there is a gravitation towards even authors who look like those that are that are that 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 still they 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 basically they try to talk about bias, race, and culture, but it's still from a white centered perspective. So I can tell you the four people running the program. One is Ghanaian, one is African-American, one is Chinese-German. Perfect. And there's a student, I don't know, oh, they're from Latin America, but they're culture kids. So, Got it. I, I, you know, and yeah. I think now in international schools, you're seeing much more airspace 
for people like yourself, Angela Howe. There are just a lot of people, Joel yeah. uh, Loveland. There's, there's just a lot of people out there that are starting to get airspace. And I think yeah. that's what's so important that you're saying is if we're going to talk about this, let's have the, vo the original voices in the front of the screen. Correct. But if, if it's by choice, because oftentimes we get forced into it because, oh, well, we're going to put you center. And it's like you can't you can't expect someone like me to. First of all, we're not a model. So you can't expect all of us to be able to effectively engage in that work. And second of all, you have to do it with the right degree of care, because sometimes engaging that work can re-traumatize us. And then now take that and connect it to what Dan was sharing is the whole idea around money can buy you um, money can insulate you from many of those things. And I, I know this because I saw it firsthand at one of the schools that I worked at in India, where it was almost like a walled garden, if you will, with a moat around it and then another fence. And, and I challenged that school and another school that I worked with in Mexico because they, for example, they, had a, so they both had a, a pretty robust service learning program. And I said, okay, I have a question then. And, and they're like, okay, well, what's your question? We love our program. And I said, how is your service learning program decentering the school and the student and supporting and uh, supporting and meeting the needs of the nearby community? Or do the kids look at some community that's far enough away and then they tell them, here's what we're going to do for you. And they never ask, what are your needs are? What resources do you not have that we have access to? How do we take, how do we, how do we learn uh, many of the norms and the stories to bring those back or take those back to our school so that it is now broaden our perspective? Because otherwise I go, otherwise what you're doing is you're operating from a very dangerous mechanism of codependency and saviorism. And once that becomes ingrained in many of the children who do have money, then they look at, they, you know, it's almost like a hammer looking for a nail. I'm going to look for a problem and use my money to solve it. That's interesting. Dan and I just talked to uh, Leanne Lavender, and she brought that up, uh, that whole point about, you know, where kids fly to a different destination and don't really look at their local community where there might be homeless, there might be low-income children that don't, you know, et cetera. But they fly and they go and help. They build whatever, a building or a hospital yeah. or and, a school. And, and, and they leave. And yeah. they leave and they come yeah, back. Yeah, that's not – that's it's kind of a tick yeah. box. And, and I think, you know, it's – I, I do want to say it's very easy to point these things out. It's much harder to break the habits and get sure. that cultural shift Correct. to people really. And so, you know, I think, you know, from a perch, it's very easy to criticize everybody. And I think it's important to, but at the same time, the amount of introspection and work and schools are busy places and, I would say we're often not very good at long-termism, you know, focusing on one thing and keep at it because there are different flavors or different focuses. People think this is important. That So there are many things being uh, competing for that airspace. But I do think this is so interesting how you shared what Leanne said, this kind of idea. You go into a place, you come back and you've done the job. Yeah, that's and, and if you apply a historical context to that, that is that is a derivative of colonialism and imperialism. And think about whose voices are centered when it comes to that and, and what what voices and faces are highlighted as a result of that. And then I would take that and point that back to the article that you just mentioned. Yeah. And, and so for me, it's it's the whole idea. Again, like you shared, it's easy for me to stand up on a perch and point out what's wrong. 
But but the way I choose to operate, for example, is I'm on the perch and I see things that you may not see. So I'm going to point them out. But then I'm going to come down and we are going to roll up our sleeve and co-construct a sustainable pathway forward together. Because yeah. ultimately, part of it is, you know, and this is something I always when when I've worked with school districts and schools that are vetting a, a variety of potential uh, workshop facilitators or or uh, consultants they're going to work with is I always add, I would just say, look, you know, if you don't select me, that's fine because you should go through the vetting process. But you do want to select somebody who's going to co-construct with you, not come in and tell you what to do, because then what happens when they're gone? Yeah, I think that's got to be sustainable. That's a good philosophy with everything, I think, isn't it? Like, um, take something technical. We do Google security audits. Unless you help someone implement the solutions, you know, it's easy to point out. It's easy to turn in, point out problems, fly out again. You know, it's yeah. definitely the right approach you're taking, Ken, for sure. Yeah, you're for, right. For any, for, any, for any endeavor, I think. I agree. And I yeah. think that co-construction is so important because I think for many teachers, their heart's in the right place, but they don't have the tools. They don't have the provocations. Right. They right. don't have kind of a guide on the side to say, you know, you just pick this book. Let's really look at what this book represents. Because in the book, there might be some good positive messages, but also there might be some constructions that really highlight what you're saying is this kind of colonialism and this kind of narrative that so often gets brushed over. Right. I, I think that's why, you know, as you know, schools that are working with people like yourself and many others where you have this guide on the side and it's a commitment where you come back four or five, six times. Like Dan says, for IT security, Dan can go into a school and tell them about their IT security and leave. It's not going to solve their IT security. But if he comes yeah. with his team multiple times over three, four years, then you're starting to see some impact. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that and that ultimately, you know, so for example, to put, put it in a numerical uh, uh put a numerical attachment to it, uh, you know, when it comes to, for example, bias, race, and cultural competency, I always, for me, I always recommend a minimum uh, start of 30 synchronous hours because it takes time. It takes time to know who's in the room. It takes time to build an ethos that is conducive for growth, that is transparent. Um, I use a poem called An Invitation of Brave Space because I hear a lot safe space used a lot, which I always follow up with safe for who. And if you're the person making that statement, how can you guarantee the safety of the others in the room, which you can't? And, and so for me, it's, it, it's you have to be able to build in a degree of credibility and trust. And that starts off with acknowledging the fact that we're in this together, it's going to take some time. And one of the things I do, like what you just shared, John, is I always encourage folks to recognize that you do have to give yourself a high degree of grace because you are the sum of the totality of your experiences. And in many cases, depending upon where you reside and where you work in the world, your proximity to those that have been most affected by, historically speaking, um, is impacted, it, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily based off on any active choice that you've made. You know, you look at, you look at uh, the United States, but, but also lots of European countries and, and, and even places in Asia where the, the city design creates segregation yeah. along many lines, along the social class lines, along language lines, along ethnicity lines. You know, in many countries that I've had the privilege of going into, um, you know, there's colorism. It's like this whole idea around there always has to be some sort of socially constructed hierarchy. 
So the first step is, again, that's part of the dying water is that is that question I asked, because the whole idea is if you don't know something, then you have to give yourself the grace and the space to acknowledge I don't know it. These are the reasons why I don't know it. And now part of the work I'm going to do is to add that perspective to my, uh, you know, to my stream of thought and to my experiences. And, and what I always say is if you truly believe in building an environment, a learning environment, and especially supporting learners and building definitive pathways towards empathy and compassion, it starts off with doing things like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, Dan was bringing up earlier on this whole economic thing where, you know, international schools, you, you need to be of a certain economic, uh, this, you know, economic background, you need to have a certain income to be able to engage with this. And I think that also in societies, you see it, there's, there's an economic segregation and more and more, uh, you know, through cultures and migrant cultures and even within countries that have multiple different uh groups of people often there is this kind of, and i'm going to be very upfront is often you know it's a white is is the dominant uh color and the Correct. economic powerhouse now Correct. of course in, in other countries it's the same but i'm just referring to what i know as having lived in, in switzerland in the united states i definitely feel that that the dan's point about the economics is so so uh, right in your face. And then for international schools to also engage with that on top of what you're talking, I think is quite complex. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and especially when you apply historical context to it as well, you know, the whole idea around who historically has had access to the financial resources that uh, have passed through generation after generation after generation. Uh, what is the result of that? Um, you know, I, I've had the privilege of, of going there nine times and uh, I will continue to go uh, as long as I am always uh, uh, welcome, which I will be, uh, is doing a lot of work in South Africa. Black South Africans are a majority down there. But historically speaking, they have not had the economic access. They've actually been denied the economic access uh, because of what was in place, which was a governmental structure. As we know, the Afrikaans, words, it, Afrikaans word is apartheid, which means separated. And so, you know, for international schools, to me, the bigger challenge uh, along those lines to Dan's point is how do you create uh, normalized policies and systems that begin to dismantle that while still being able to operate? Because in the end, they still have bills to pay. And I, I get that part. But again, I, I unless I'm proven otherwise, I do believe it is possible to make money and do good. Whether it be to Dan's point, whether it be offering scholarships, uh, my whole thing is if you offer scholarships, who are those scholarships for? Um, I'll give you all one quick example because I know we're gonna we're gonna run close to time. So one of the schools that I worked at uh, in Guatemala, in Guate, they have a scholarship program, and I don't remember all the details now because it's been a number of years, but they have a scholarship program that they specifically designate a certain number of seats for what would be a year nine student or in the U.S. a freshman. And, 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 they, and they do it for the whole country. And the whole idea being is they go through this process and it's very, very competitive because, of course, all the families want their kids to have access to the best possible educational experience they can get, rightfully so. My whole thing is I would love to be able to see from a governmental level, you start to build a minimum baseline infrastructure that now dismantles the, 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 the fact that this school is one of only a few schools in the entire country that even can do this. But nevertheless, this is what this school is doing because this is what they have control of. 
And so as I was dialoguing with some of the school leaders and the director of the school, and they were telling me about this, I was like, okay, so what, tell me more about the process. And like, for example, the kids have to apply, they go through an interview process and they go through all these things. And I said, but how, I go, how are you ensuring that financial access is not a barrier even within that? So for example, if I make it to the interview and I come from a family that is economically under-resourced and I can't afford to wear, for example, a suit, is that going to, are you going to mark me down for something like that? Because the whole idea is they have this, this system in place and I'm like, but you also got to interrogate every step of the system. But my main point in bringing and sharing this is that they have something in place that is specific to the country and the residents of the country. So in other words, in order to be eligible, you have to be a resident of the country. Your first language has to be Spanish. Like they have things in place to make sure that it is meeting the needs of the community and in this case, the country. And the cool thing is that one of the, one of the folks who went through that program, when I, when they were telling me about this is I was like, I literally said, Oh, does the name Louise von Andring up? They're like, Oh yeah, he went through our program. I'm like, Holy cow. I go, I saw him keynote many, many, I don't know if you two know who he is. His, he works, uh, I don't know if he's still there, but he worked at Carnegie Mellon. The most recent project he has is Duolingo, but his team is oh, the one yeah. who, his team is the one who developed the, the CAPTCHA. Oh, wow. Yes. Cool. Oh, there's a whole, we don't have time, but there's a whole lot of things that, that his That's team cool. has developed that, that, in fact, okay, so here's one, because the three of us go far enough back. Do you all remember the Google's the ESP game? Do you remember that money chance? John does. ESP game. No, I don't. Okay, so his team developed that. So for, for your listeners, I'll share. So early on when Google was curating more and more light, more in images for uh, uh, Google images, they had two options. We can either pay someone to index these photos so that they're searchable, or... What they did was they worked with Louise Von Ahn's team that said two things. And this is why I love this. And this goes to back to Dan's point about uh, inclusivity that dismantles financial barriers and my whole thing around uh, international schools embracing more of a cultural, multicultural diversity on campus, because this is why he was at this school. So what Google did was they worked with him. So what his team looked at were two things. People, humans love to game. And I, he gave some numbers of what it was like, you know, the average human in whatever year it was played over 10,000 hours of solitaire. And the whole idea being they love gaming. So his whole task was how do we combine something that humans love to do that is a normalized activity we do to solve a problem? The problem was Google can't pay somebody to index all of these photos. The solution was to take those two and they created the ESP game. So for the, the audience who doesn't know, what would happen is you would log into your account and you would go on this game and you would get paired up with somebody somewhere in the world. You never know who they were. And an image would pop up and you would start typing in words. You associate that with that image. And the faster you the words matched with your partner, you got points for it. Oh, but nice. what those words were doing was those words would serve as an as, as index of that image. And so let's say we got a picture of like, because John, where you are, like Lac Lamont. Yeah. And the first thing you and I, you and I get paired up and we type in water. Okay. So now that's there. So we match that. So now when that images pops up for a different team of competitors, water is now a flag word, which means you can't, you can't match water anymore. You got to match a different oh. word. 
Okay, nice. Yes. Wow. And so that's what they did. And that's why they were doing like CAPTCHA. Every time we would type in a word with CAPTCHA, that was actually helping the New York Times digitize all of their publication uh, for the whole history of the New York Times. So you see, it was combining a human condition with a problem. And how do we put those two together to engage in something that we already do, but to solve a problem? Now I'm going to connect back to the whole point of our conversation. Here's an international school that looked at how do we dismantle financial barrier? How do we authentically support the community, not performatively support the community? How do we embrace higher degrees of multiculturalism on campus? And how do we do it in a way that serves the needs of our current student population, the student population that we offer scholarship to, uh, it diversi they diversify their educator workforce on that campus. And you see it all became this win, 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 win. And that goes back to the whole point of our conversation around when you start to see these things and you start to take definitive steps towards doing them, it's not, it doesn't have to directly correlate to a story like what I told you, but, but I know that they, like that school had a program where students that wanted to become architects, a former student is one of the, runs one of the main architectural firms there in uh, Ciudad de Guatemala. Um, and they, it's a mentoring program among many other things, because it becomes this whole thing of where the school becomes like this community-based hub that not only supports those that are on campus, but it supports the larger community as well. Fantastic. Ken, before we leave, I have a question. There are a lot of people in international schools that are having uh, these conversations. They're being uh, supported through professional development by people like yourself and many others out that are engaging and schools are making these commitments. But often I've heard, or some people will say, I'm gonna keep quiet because if I say something, it might be perceived negatively or they might consider me a, a racist, a bigot. So there is this hesitancy because often right. people don't have the tools or the language. And so they're preferring just to keep quiet and kind of go with the flow and take in whatever. I'm asking you, you know, what, how do you support people that fall into that feeling? And that often can be because of the situation, personal experiences, interchanges that they might have had with another individual that's maybe labeled them that way. So there is a certain hesitancy and maybe even fear sometimes when engaging on these topics, which are quite complicated, right. emotional and often perceived, you know, you can suddenly be labeled as somebody very negative or even get a label where you're considered racist, bigot or whatever, etc. What would you say to schools or to individuals when you are falling into that feeling like it's better I keep quiet because I'm not equipped to really engage in this? What might you say? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. Uh, and I hear the descriptors, the difficult conversations, the uncomfortable um, I always I always encourage school leadership to one start to shift that terminology. One, these are necessary conversations. Okay, so that's number one. And number two, uh, to recognize the fact that silence does not equal growth and complicity maintains the status quo. But you also have to create an environment or an ethos uh, for uh, voices to be heard, and that means everybody's voice to be heard. Uh, you have to provide a degree of grace to recognize that even if somebody says something that may be um, hurtful, destructive, insensitive, you know, if that's, if that's the 
if that's based on their experiences coming into that environment, the response needs to be, okay, now one, here's where harm was caused, but then two, here's how we might go through a process of, of, of examining that and unlearning many of those things. A lot of term, I'll give you, a, you know, a lot of terminology that is normalized in education is actually equates to othering and is, is culturally destructive a lot, but, but it's so normalized, you don't realize it. So, you know, there's that part, but then the other part is, you know, when you operate from the right degree of humility and curiosity, your, your, your response is not going to be defensive or punitive. It's going to be uh, asking further questions. Um, I know that it's hard for some folks. Uh, I don't blame the adults for not engaging in the dialogue because there's a high probability that they never afforded the opportunity when they were in school. But then I always ask, how do we then then what do we need? What needs to be in place for us to break that cycle? Because if you don't engage in that dialogue with your students, guess what? They will become an adult. You're going to replicate you. And at what point do we break the cycle uh, when it comes to schools? I always encourage schools to support um, the staff, both the classroom educators and the staff as a whole that keeps the school, the lights on, the floors clean and the things running uh, to form affinity groups to where I have a group that is a place where I can be my whole true authentic self uh, and express my thoughts. Because part of what people don't realize is the more you remain complicit and silent, it's actually become self-destructive as well. Because you might think things that you want to say, but by silencing yourself, you're going through a process of self-pacification and self-traumatization because you're not expressing what you're thinking. And so the whole idea is how do we create these brave spaces, and I'm using that phrase intentionally, so that we, we affirm and acknowledge that we are, again, we have the right, to, and these are lines from the poem, we have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have a responsibility to examine what we think we know. There is no such thing as a, a safe space because we exist in the real world. We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. And that part of constructing a brave space is done in community side by side because it's not possible to do it uh, as an individual. And when you start to embrace those elements of the Brave Space poem and build that ethos, whether you're a school leader or a department chair or anything like that, you begin to recognize that you do want people to share what they're thinking, but we do it from a degree of, of, of growth and, and, um, um, and support. Because ultimately, we, only, we carry our experiences with us. That's what's our, what I always say is what's in our invisible knapsack. And sometimes the things that are in our visible knapsack that we have lost sight of, uh, it's not it's not of any there shouldn't be of any direct consequence to us. It should be an acknowledgement and recognition that uh, there's always room for growth. And if we're educators and we believe in curiosity and humility, we also simultaneously believe in lifelong learning and that it is a marathon, not a sprint, and that that learning will continue to grow. And I love the idea of the brave space, you know, the, the, this idea of bravery, because if you are in a safe space, you can be kind of almost just sit there and not do anything but bravery Correct. requires an action it requires a disposition where you actually have to do something and and amplify a feeling or whatever so i really like that that really yeah. resonates with me i'm mindful yeah. of time dan right i think this yeah, has just I, been great I, mean, I think that's actually a great place to finish I, I could chat to ken for three more hours but unfortunately i've got the wife and children downstairs we have to go and and eat dinner and do all the evening tasks. But um, that was a great way to finish it. Brave spaces. Never heard that phrase. Um, I love it. I'm going to use it at the next opportunity. Uh, Ken, Perfect. I mean, uh, how can people get in touch with you if they want to uh, talk to you? Uh, I mean, I have, I'm on all the socials. I've got my website, kennethshelton.net. 
Um, and Ken, just so for our audience knows, the show notes, Ken is added to the show notes, and that's a great place to go. You can get his website, yeah, and he's put a Perfect. lot of resources. Perfect. Please, please, uh, if this really resonates with you, spend some time in the show notes, because Ken has been very graceful and added a lot of resources there. And I think this is always so nice. Uh, our audience loves the show notes because it becomes a new journey, kind of, you know, it's Perfect. the next step of this journey. So thank you, Ken also for taking the time but yeah, just quickly you. it's kennethshelton.net uh yep. love the love the the pictures and uh all the stuff that you're doing thank so, you thank you well, so I, much. I hope i hope to see the two of you in person soon yes. sooner sooner well, rather than later and uh yeah. i'm down the street so we'll work something out yes please ken thank, thanks so much for coming it's been uh, been a great chat I learned a lot as, as always so thanks thank you <laughs>